Recording in progress. All right, nerds, here we are again. Another episode of Swing Thoughts. It's uh, Coach Tim and, of course, golf spiritual leader, Humble Howard. And uh, O'ConnorGolf.ca is where you can uh, find out. Actually, we, we, we got to make sure, Tim, that we get the uh, Substack address right. Because I looked you up and I was like, oh, no, 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 he's not at... All the, all the gold is no longer at O'ConnorGolf.ca. No, the new gold is at toconnor.substack.com. toconnorsubstack.com. Or you can just go to Substack and search for me. Yeah, I just love how you're uh, embracing the new technology. It's very cool. As always, this program is brought to you baked fresh uh, weekly, actually semi-weekly in the off-season. I uh, can't believe we're only uh, a couple months away from the real uh, season of Swing Thoughts. Uh, as always, brought to you by TaylorMade Golf. And while I'm down here in Mexico, uh, my buddy is staying at my place in Toronto, and uh, he said, yeah, something came from uh, TaylorMade. I was like, what? You know, apparently he didn't tell me, like, three or four days go by. He goes, yeah, I saw some package. I go, you, could you open it, please? And uh, I said, he's like, he couldn't see that. He's not a golfer, so he didn't understand the significance of uh, getting the uh, new stealth driver. And I'm excited. You didn't understand it was Christmas? <laughs> That's right. We call it. Yeah, here on Swing Thoughts, we call that tailor-made Christmas. So uh, I tested it in December, and we've talked about it for a couple months. You just had your fitting a couple weeks ago, right? Yeah, but I already got it delivered, and I got my new irons and my new three wood. Look at you. Well, mm-hmm. I've been hitting the old stealth down here in Mexico, and at sea level, you know, it's it's funny because last November I was uh, in uh, a place north of Mexico City at 6,000 feet, which is great for the ego for old men because, you know, everything flies 10% fur- further. But here at sea level, I was still hitting that stealth driver last year's model. I kept thinking to myself, you know, how could they have improved on this? But, you know, those new commercials with uh, Tiger and Rory, they call it, uh, what are they calling it, Far Vision or... Forgiveness. Forgiveness, right. And that's what it is. It still goes far, but you swing thought nerds are going to love the fact that it's just a little more forgiving. And that is something we can all use. Yeah. I, when we had a tailor made guy on uh, on the show for the first one of the year, going to have to ask him, what, uh, where doth forgiveness spring from? Yeah. Well, I'm sure it came from some clever New York advertising agency. Um, we got a lot to get through today, um, and I want to get started because uh, even in the pre-show, we've been talking to our guests, and there's just so many great stories from somebody who has been telling great golf stories for a really long time. Our guest has written virtually for all of golf's major magazines. You've read them in Golf Digest, Golf Magazine, Golf Illustrated, Sports Illustrated, and others. I've tried to pare down Andy's uh, bio, but it really is something else. You know, this is one of those situations where if you want to get the full richness of this guest, you got to Google our guest, Andy Broomer. Andy, 
uh, is also a golf instructor. And just we're going to nerd out on golf swings today, which we hardly ever do. But Andy is also a certified instructor in uh, something uh, you may have heard of. The golf swing, the golfing machine. He's a David Ledbetter A swing certified instructor, certified instructor of the Impact Zone, and he's also taught golf along with writing poetry and reviewing for the New York Times. And I'm not even scratching the surface. Welcome to the show, Andy. How are you? Hey, thanks a lot, fellas, for inviting me on your show. Yeah, it's good to. Um, I think this first time that we've actually even through. The magic of Zoom. Have we met in person before? Like, where do we Seems meet? Like we met maybe at the PGA Merchandise Show some years ago, or at an Open or a tournament. Or I, I, I think we must have. Yeah, but we've been going back for for yeah. years. Uh, I've been reading your stuff, and and, and uh, it it's pretty interesting in terms of. I don't know. Why don't you tell us how you got into scribbling about this game? Uh, that might be a neat place to start. Sure. Um, well, I mean, I mean, the way I got into scribbling about it uh, was was playing it. You know, I mean, I started playing golf when I was twelve years old uh, on Long Island in a town called Freeport, and I uh, was lucky enough to 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 learn to play and to play my sort of adolescent years at Beth page state park, which was seven, eight miles away from, you know, um, but I didn't have lessons. I didn't play my, my parents and my father was, a, they were depression people and grew up in New York city and didn't play golf at all. I had to get my, I had to teach my father to play golf in order to get him to take me to play. And it was kind of, um, a lifelong gift, I think I gave him because he, he enjoyed it his entire life. Um, to let you know how naive we were about golf, um, bought me a set of clubs and I hit so many balls that first year when I was 12 and 13 years old, the grips were worn out. And I said, Dad, my clubs are, are I've worn my clubs out. Let, let I need a new set. He said, Okay, let's go get a new. We didn't know you could change grips. <laughs> oh, that's great. <laughs> so that's what happened. Um, I played, uh, uh, basketball and baseball in high school because we didn't have a golf team. And I honestly didn't even know the words junior golf existed. And I suspect they did on Long Island, even back then in the mid late 1960s. I started college at Rutgers university and I walked on, they had, then, then they had freshman teams and I guess they call them varsity teams. And I made. I walked on and made the first competitive round I ever played was trying out for the Rutgers University golf team. I never played the ball down because you know Beth Page. People might not understand was a goat was a goat track. Even Beth Page Black, you know, which was the course we mostly played because you people may know the mythology of Beth Page State Park and Beth Page Black. But even back in those days, we'd have to get there at three, four in the morning on a weekend and wait on a line to sign up to play. And then we'd go eat breakfast or sleep in a car. And when the sun came up, we'd play. And back then they had these chalk boards because there were five courses and they put the waiting time from sunrise to when you could play after. You, so they'd have red, uh, ye yellow course, two hours and 45 minutes, green course, three hours, red course, two hours and 10 minutes, black course, 20 minutes. 
because nobody wanted to play it. It was so hard. <laughs> so I said, let's play that one. You know, I don't want to wait all day, you know. And so I actually grew up playing golf on the black horse at Beth Page. Um, you know, but I, I made I, so the first competitive first time I ever played the ball down the first competitive round I ever played was tr- tr- walking onto the Rutgers golf team. And I made the team, you know, which um, I'm still proud of. Um but I was an English major, and, um, you know, I mean, and then I played, a, you know, in the, in the varsity team. I must have been third or fourth best player on the team. And I thought, if I can't beat these guys, how am I going to ever, you know, play as a, a tour pro? And so I said, I need to, you know, not concentrate on this. And plus, I was getting very interested in literature and writing and the world of ideas and art. And so I pursued that you know, after college and I taught English and writing and I became a book reviewer and an art reviewer and poet and publishing some poetry. Um, then, um, my wife is a college professor and she got a job teaching Spanish and Latin American literature at Occidental college in Los Angeles. Uh, I, six months or so after we got here, I saw an ad in the paper for an editor needed for golf tips magazine. Which was just sort of, I don't know if you guys are familiar with that. Yeah, I've heard, I remember, oh, I remember it. Golf Tips. Yeah. yeah. Remember Golf Tips. Absolutely. Yeah. That's probably how we met him. I think you, yeah, I think you're right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I, I just find it amazing that, that. <laughs> Let me know if I'm rambling. Interrupt well, yeah, me. We're, 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 I, I just find it amazing to. that they were advertising for an editor. Howard, yeah. what did, uh, what did you? No, no, I, I no, I, we're both, we were both about to jump in at some point, Andy, because I, I said, and yeah. by way of introducing you, if you want to hear the Andy story, you've got to Google it. But what we want to get right to the meat of this, Andy, which well, is. I'm not sure you're going to get to the walk on part in Googling, but anyway. Well, here's the thing. <laughs> you know, one of the things that's most fascinating fascinating many of the things that are fascinating about you to both of us and hopefully to our listeners is that you you are not only a high level decorated writer somebody that's able to take this complicated game and put words to it you've ghost written um instructional articles Mm -hmm. but i think what the crossroads it's so different about you is that you were able to to write about this game but also as i mentioned in the introduction you're a certified instructor of the game, which is, I think, probably one of the most unique things about you. If you don't, I mean, I can't think of anyone else, Tim, that we've ever talked to or known of that has the kind of credentials in terms of your ability to write and your ability to talk about the game. How did that, how did those two things intersect? Oh, uh, that's a good question. Okay. I, I got the job at Golf Tips. Let me just put it that way. And at that point, it was a newsprint publication, um, and the editor wasn't even a golfer. And so they'd have instruction articles with arrows that, you know, lines that were supposed to be parallel that were crossing. All the information <laughs> was way off, you know. So I had a long, even at that point, in 19, I guess it would, might have been 1991 or 1992, I had a long, you know, resume of writing. And, you know, I mean, I also played some amateur golf after you know, after college golf, you know, uh, on, you know, on a reasonably high level, I, I, I was, I lived in Memphis for a while where my wife was also a professor and I was um, seventh ranked amateur in the city, which it, it isn't bad as the city of re- really good golfers. A lot of oh, yeah. American golfers. Um, it was a lot of fun too. Anyway, 
I start. So I, so then when I became editor, we went to a glossy magazine because, you know, and uh, it started to grow. And I, I'm, you know, I think I understood the game and I understood writing. And um, so, you know, we'd assign art and we did instruction and we added equipment too at that point, coverage. So the articles I'd signed to uh, golf instructors, and I'll keep their names innocently concealed, uh, would come back really poorly written, you know, because they understood what they wanted. They understood the swing, but they couldn't write well. And I'd have to write all of them over again. And so I said to them, listen, why don't you hire and well, you know, a writer to help you write the articles? Good idea, Andy. So they come back with writers that they'd hire to help them write the articles. And they were well written, but they didn't understand golf. So they, they couldn't communicate what the pro was telling them. So I'd have to rewrite them. So I basically re- rewrote the entire magazine, every issue. Uh, I, didn't, I didn't even have an assistant editor at that time. So I said to myself, you know, I, I've got both of these skills. I mean, a fascination, like Howard mentioned, a fascination with the golf swing. You know, I had studied it myself, even when I was in college at Rutgers, the coach was a local pro, and he kept asking me to help him with a swing because he was playing at a tournament coming up. And I'd say, hey, coach, man, you know, I thought you're supposed to be helping me. He said, yeah, but you know so much about this. I just, you know, when you, you know, do I roll it open? Do I keep it shut? You know, okay, let's, you know, let me see you hit a few, you know. <laughs> um, uh, so I decided I'm going to combine both sides of these things. You know, I mean, I'm going to keep learning as much as I can about the swing and keep trying to improve my game. The two always didn't go together. Uh, and I'm going to keep right, trying to write instruction on a level that show that, that establishes me as a kind of instructor in my own right on a level, you know, with other instructors, you know, obviously, I mean, as you guys know, I mean, golf on one hand is, 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 is theoretical, but it's mostly practical, you know, and a good instructor doesn't necessarily mean they have to be a good writer, you know. Yeah. The instructor watches somebody hit balls and play and, and sees what needs adjustment or correction or changing or, or emphasizing. And the so, other- Andy, I'm going to break in. What do you... Um- what golf instruction books, maybe some of the more popular ones, do you think yeah. are really well written? A really good balance between That's a really, really good question. Providing you know great instruction, but also it's well written, entertaining, understandable. What what books stand well, out to you? The well, you know, a lot. Well, I mean, that's a it's a difficult question to ask. Because what's the first I, one that pops in your mind? Hogan's Five Lessons. You know, as Herbert Warren Wynn, arguably the greatest golf writer in English ever, it's beautifully written. Um, You guys are familiar with that book. I mean, it's not a mystery that it's the number one selling golf book, I think, or continues to be over, you know, all these decades. But there are inconsistencies in that book. That can only be explained by the fact, and I, I don't know if Herbert, you guys maybe will know if he was a good player or not. I, you know, he, I, I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. A, a lot of golf writers are good players, like you know that I know. Um, 
But there are inconsistencies that people have brought up and talked about that can only be explained to either editors not catching it or, um, you know, no, somebody not catching it. Mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, at one point, Hogan talks about the swing plane, and there's a famous image of the pane of glass over the shoulders of the golfer. And Hogan, interestingly, said that was the key idea that really kind of completed his understanding of the swing and allowed him to become the great champion he was. At one point in the book, he says the golfer has to swing the club on that plane. And another point in the book, he says the golfer, the the club stays below that plane through the entire swing. Mm -hmm. So, like, which one is it? And and of course, Andy, the uh, and below it at the same time. And of course, that book has been poured over and every page of it and every word has been dissected like it's one of the books of the Bible. If that's well, it is, but but not so much for the inconsistency between the writing and the instruction. If that book is one of the best written and and Tim and I were sort of talking about this other book before you came on with us. The golfing machine, which you're a certified instructor, and, and a very good That's friend of ours is uh, is one of the first people that I was ever... Authorized. Authorized. how we say it. But I, so yeah. I've known of this book for a long time. One of our friends, Mark Evershed, um, mm-hmm. first introduced mm-hmm. it to me. Would you say that, not, not as a well-written book, but as a book that's confused more golfers, would you think that that would be the well, let opposite? Well, let me try to set a record straight here, since you brought the topic up of quality of writing and, and golf books. I actually think the book is brilliantly written. Okay. Beautifully. You know, it's, po- it's kind of poetry in its own way. And then the second answer to your question is yes. Maybe that confusing. it has confused people, but... The odd thing about it confusing people, and I've had this discussion a million times, oh, the book is so difficult and so hard to understand. Well, have you studied it and read it through all the way through? No. Well, so so you don't understand a book that you haven't really read and studied. It's it's a book, you know. Well, I get yeah. Well, okay, let's leave it at that. You know, authorized instructors like me and 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 the international group of them understand that book. Mm -hmm. So what is it? What, well, there's two. Now, there's two things. What do what do people misunderstand about it? And the second part is, they you know famously Bobby Clampett, who you've written yeah. with, the Impact Zone. I'm aware. Well, I, of that. I co-wrote a book with Bobby Clampett. Yes, the, the Impact Zone, and he and I are. And yeah, as I just said, um, what was? Can maybe you can start with that. Um, what was this? What was, what was the story with Bobby? Who a lot of our listeners, you know probably don't know how high level a player he was because a lot of people were sort of introduced to him as an announcer. Right. But what did that? So this is kind of both of these questions are the same. Did the golfing machine as hard as it is to understand screw him up or cause that well, was, that's it. You know, if you don't mind, I mean that question in a way goes back to my beginning in golf writing because before I got the job at, golf tips i was doing a little i started to do a little freelance golf writing in la you know i wrote for golf news which is from dan popper's publication out in the desert which he's been doing for years and years okay i got in touch with al barco who was editor of um golf illustrated at the time and he liked you know we've become friends all these years and he liked my writing resume and he said yeah i'll give you a chance i'll give you a chance at, at doing something for us Everybody's talking about what happened to Bobby Clampett, because at that point, Bobby, you know, had a sort of a very bright start on tour. You know, 
I mean, his rookie season, I think he was a top 10 in the money list. He almost won the British Open. He won a tournament. And then he started to decline. And everybody said, what's wrong with Bobby Clampett? What's wrong with Bobby Clampett? The golfing machine has, has screwed up Bobby Clampett. He said, I want you to go to Bobby Clampett and find out from him what's going on. Okay? All right. So I never heard of the golfing machine. Of course, I had I knew of Bobby Clampett. I never met him, you know. So Bobby said, yeah, you know, I'm playing in this sort of high-end pro-am in Las Vegas on, on Wednesday. Um, why, don't you, why don't you, you know, come out to the pro-am and you can ride and we can take carts. You can ride and we'll do the interview while I play. I said, well, yeah, that's pretty in- an interesting way to do it, you know? And interviewing somebody for a mag- major magazine article during a competitive round of golf, even though not a tour round, but still, you know, it was a, co- a competition. Hale Irwin, Craig Stadler, a lot of the top players, Scott Simpson, I remember, they all played in this thing. Um, so Bobby starts explaining to me that he learned golf from Ben Doyle, who was the first authorized instructor of the golfing machine up where Bobby lived and Ben taught Carmel Valley, California, Carmel Valley uh, Ranch at that little lovely resort that I don't know if it even still exists or not. I think it does. So Bobby became the number one amateur in the world, uh, the first four-time college All-America at uh, Brigham Young University. As I mentioned, had this tremendous start on tour. And that was all from his learning golf through the foundation of the golfing machine and Ben Doyle. When he got on tour, it was the beginning of the era of the gurus. So you had Jimmy Ballard, who had helped Curtis Strange win two consecutive U.S. Opens. And, and David Ledbetter was making his name, you know, with working with Nick Price and Nick, Nick Faldo, you know. And, and the majors, those guys won. Um, Hank Haney, etc. So Bobby's, you know, had the rabbit ears, like, you know, and he went to go to see all these gurus, and they all started changing his swing. That your swing's too flat, you're too shut at the, co- at the top. One of them said, y- you've got more moving parts than an erector set, you know? <laughs> so... That's when Bobby's game started to cl- decline. And then I, some, a, light, a kind of a light bulb went on. And I said, you can't have something that accounts for the success of a golfer and its decline at the same time. You see? So if the golfing machine is what developed, helped him develop his skills, it can't also be responsible for the decline of his skills. So this big myth or this big misconception that the golfing machine ruined Bobby Clampett's was circulating and I tried to set the record straight and said no it was when he left the golfing machine that that and and that's true he that's got really confused interesting. and he lost uh, years later which I we can talk about he he called me up and said I want you to help me write a book I said well what's the book he said how swing styles don't matter what matters is impact right and I said well how are you going to put that in 200 pages of a book and he said, I don't know. That's why I'm calling you. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> and so we wrote this book. But in yeah. any case, that got me interested in the golfing machine. So then I went up to see Ben Doyle. And by that time, I was editor of Golf Tips. Or soon after, I became editor of Golf Tips. I needed a writer. So I hired Bobby to write articles for me, Ben Doyle to write articles. You know, and I got very interested in this thing. Um, be- believe it or not, I had gone on a writing uh, trip on golf in Sweden and Denmark, and Pia Nielsen, who you 
may know is, you know, um, Vision 54. Uh, yeah. Yep. And, you know, she was a LPGA tour player before that, you know, and helped Annika develop her skills through the Swedish junior golf program. She became I, I turned her on to the golfing machine and, and Ben and she went to spend time with Ben Doyle, you know. So I just be, you know, I'm trying to get back to your question, which I'm beginning to forget what it was. It's OK. It's it's a very, very it's a very complicated study of the physics and the geometry of the golf swing. It's not a swing method. In fact, it's the most flexible of all the literature in golf because it's not a, th- a method. It's not the A swing. It's not the one plane swing or the two plane swing. You know, it doesn't um, present a bias of a teacher that, you know, naturally teachers who write what they know do. Um, um, it says it supports one's own way of swinging but not the way of swinging okay. something like that well that's what you i know? wanted to ask so and, um, essentially- andy andy i was gonna let you know we yeah. we've, we we have um we have only scheduled for another 10 or 15 minutes so we have a lot of questions <laughs> to ask you my friend oh i'm sorry that's okay so let's just okay. let's just go back and forth on a couple of things tim well i love the fact that yeah you've um kind of set the record straight for many people on the golf machine um and how one could view it as just some really good, uh, some really good writing, and 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 maybe some degree of entertainment. What do you think? What strikes you as it, one of the best books you've ever read that maybe some of our listeners would pick up just because okay. it would be a nice combination of enjoyable reading sure. and learning. Absolutely. Things. Well, the last thing I'll say about the golfing machine is that Homer Kelly, the author, meant it to be really a teaching manual, and he had a vision of authorized instructors of which I became, I'm the only writer that ever became one. Cool. Um, you know, and it's so the teach, you know, as he says in the book, there isn't anybody that need will need all of the information in this mm-hmm. book, but there isn't anybody who can't use some of it. So that's, ba- you know, unless people really want to study it and become a student of the book, they're better off not even trying. Okay. Um, that said, they're also what, yeah. would do well to go see authorized instructors who so, will be able to help them. I, I wanted to ask so what a, book would you suggest would be um, other books? Yeah. Just, no, just a, what, what book is in your library that uh-huh. you just enjoy to read uh, that could be somewhat interpreted as an instruction book? Well, you know, I like a lot of the old ones. I mean, I mean, Ernest Jones swing the club head is a is a work of genius. Um, you know, as I mentioned, uh, well, golf my way. Nicholas's book was probably mm. next to five lessons, the most influential book for you know certain generations of golfers. You know, what about Bobby Jones? But I like Bobby Jones writing. Now, there's an example of a you know he was an English major at Georgia Tech. You know, that guy could write. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I think Bobby Jones understood the swing and could write about it. So, yeah, but down the fairway. Um, I like I like David Ledbetter's books. I like Jim McLean's books. All of them, I think, you know, they've got, you know, again, um, you know, these these. So what happened is these teachers and I've done some writing for both of them. I don't want to, you know, ghost should be read, not heard or seen i suppose <laughs> uh, i've helped them in different ways and you know i mean it just is a fr- just even looking over manuscript etc 
But, you know, these great teachers, you know, they're not going to let things go by. You know, they've, they've picked up that, you know, the writers, you know, can, you know, help them. But they have it's their name that goes on the book. Sure. So they they are much more, you know, diligent in in making sure it's 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 done right. Um, you know, I love, you know, I was just reading yesterday um, Julius Burroughs, who a lot of people won't even remember who that is. He wrote a book called Swing Easy, Hit Hard. That's right. Um, George, George Newton's book, Natural Golf, that and talk of Lauren Rubinstein. You're, you're, you're probably friends. With yeah, of course. It, you know? I mean, I think that's one of the best written golf books. It's beautifully written. Um, but from your perspective as an instructor, I wanted to get in and ask this question. Not not getting back to the golf machine, but right. in in some of the things that you know we've been corresponding a little bit. What are what are some of the things that that you would say? Hang on. What are some of the things that you would say the average golfer misunderstands about the golf swing? You mentioned something like, you know, um, you know, people have been taught you don't want to take it back closed or shut at the top, things right, like that. Right. But, but, and even maybe using uh, Hogan as an example, what are what is the one or two things you could think of that our listeners misunderstand about the golfing motion? Well, it's a good question because in a way that's what brought us to this talk today because I noticed Tim's and your uh, postings about Hogan and his um, hip hip action. Yes, that's right. And his writing of, of, of the hip. And, and if I, you know, and in the, so, so that's my answer is how to use the hips correctly. Yeah. Well, let's because, talk about that. Because in the, in the time and the years I've spent teaching others, if someone put a gun to my head and said, give give your students one in, bit one instruction what would it be and i would say start your downswing by by shifting your weight to the shifting your hips to the left and then turning them a shift and turn because hardly any do any of them do so they're and, and so their shoulders go, you know go over their hips mm-hmm. and all sorts of their swing is too steep and all sorts of things go wrong um, but why are we afraid know. to do that, Andy? I mean, I mean, even at, I was going to say even my level, but you know, like I'm down here for a couple months working on my swing, getting ready for tournament season. And why is that shift to the left and then opening so hard? Because you know, one of the, the uh, one of the famous drills that a lot of people are doing uh, for power is a step drill. They basically you know swing and step at the same time. But I even in my own swing, I find myself hardly ever getting to that. Why is that? The step girl, I mean, step, step, keep Yeah, you, you basically turn, you, no, yeah, well, it's a version of that, but basically what it's trying to replicate is the shift to the left and then opening is what you're talking about. Why does that mystify uh, yeah. so many of us? Um, well, am I allowed to use a. You can swear if you want. Three letter, four letter word here. You can swear, it, it. my friend. It's 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 going to be relatively benign. Um, there's a story of uh, you know Eisenhower loved to play. President Eisenhower loved to play golf, and he played a lot with Sam Snead, who, by the way, I helped write a book called "The Game I Love." Wow. I was brought in at the last minute to help Fran Pirazzolo, the author who helped Sam finish it. But anyway, because Fran had to work with the New York Yankees as sports psychologist for the World Series. They were playing, and President Eisenhower said, "Sam, I want to get some more power in my swing. What do I? What do I do?" And Sneed said, well, Mr. President, you got to get your ass into it. Okay? Mm-hmm. So the ass and the hips are kind of, it's, you know, I remember Tiger, I can't activate my glutes. Right. 
So this is the whole unit we're talking about here. And to answer your question, you know, you guys know the uh, what a homunculus is. A homunculus is this little is the image in your brain that's in the shape of the human being, and it and it represents the allocation of nerve signals that the brain sends to different parts of the body. And when you when it's illustrated, the fingers are gigantic. The lips are gigantic. Okay. Uh, again, not quite a four-letter word, but the genitals are gigantic. Well, that's but, you know, the, yeah, but, you know but like, the hips and the butt are are like a thin toothpick because the brain does not send signals easily to that part of the body. You know, to the to the to the hips, to the glut, to the center of the body. They're called, you know, and so in order to get it to move, you've got to think about it. And mm-hmm. what does Hogan say in that book? The only thing I think about when I begin my downswing is he's, you know, he says, turning my hips to the left. I'm sure somebody told him, Ben, you also have to have lateral movements. So right. Then he put he put that in there. OK, but the key here is that it's it's the only thing in the book where he says it's the only thing I think about. it's the only time he talks about what is he thinking about hmm. okay and because and uh, that is so it doesn't happen naturally it, you know it doesn't you know and also there's a bit of training involved in this idea of separating the hips and the shoulders which as humans and Homer Kelly points this out in the golfing machine he calls it a hula hoop flexibility that we're able to do it. If you think of the chubby checkers dance, the twist, the sh- hips and shoulders are moving in opposite directions. So it take it takes a little training, and it's behind that mythological or myth myth that uh, golf isn't a natural movement. You know, um, I and we could talk a lot about that, which I don't think we have time for. Um, you know, um, but that's the answer. Is that I think. You know, it, it 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 doesn't happen naturally, and so right. one has to think, one has to train oneself to do it. By the and way, you know, by the way, Andy, humunculus is also what I refer to as my genitals as well. So, <laughs> well, there you go. Well, well, you know, it's, I've been it's, waiting it's five minutes to do that joke. You know, as, yeah. as the as the neurologist would say, <laughs> that's okay in their book. So, Andy, but thank you for reminding me how we how we connected. Um, yeah around that thing about Hogan. And so the way I got interested in learning more about Hogan was um, I became friends with this guy, Dave Hamilton, who Mm -hmm. co-created a training device um, called the putting arc with VJ Trollio in the um, famous wooden putting arc. Exactly. And I got, I I must have about, well, I only have one of them. I have one in wood and one plastic. Mm-hmm. And it was so VJ was a golf machine guy. Yeah. Just, just as by passing. But anyways, they uh, brought me in to help them with a book that I'm convinced has the worst title in English literature. It was called The Missing Piece of Ben Hogan's Secret Puzzle. Ah, <laughs> and, I have that book. Yes, yes. And uh I, I, I said, guys, can we change this title? No, they're too far down the road. But anyways, so was um, it a golfing machine guy who who helped write? Yeah, this yeah. And it's what they here's the key thing: what they said about Hogan that the I reason people it, got so confused ahead. and basically misled in the modern fundamentals book is that Hogan said more than forty times you turn the hips left to start the downswing, right. but as you mentioned a few minutes ago, what the only 
I think it was only three or four times mentioned it also has to be a lateral shift, then a turn. So what these guys discovered, they said the missing piece was that Hogan on his backswing actually moved to his left side. Absolutely. Well, he moved to his left side. So in fact, he, he loaded up on the left side while going back. So once he completed his downswing, all he had to do was turn. Well, and, he'd start back and he'd start back and then, and then start to, turn his hips as he was finishing his back one. And you see Trevino does the same thing, even even sooner. All good yeah, players. All, all good players do that. I mean, the idea that you know that's what you see a good player. Not like, all, but a lot. But but even yeah. like Rory is a great example. You look at Rory at halfway back. He's already loaded his right side. He's starting to load his left side as his yes. as his hands go to the top. But you know, we have a friend I've mentioned already, Mark Evershed, who once said to me, "You can move your hips laterally all you want as long as you're on plane." Because the reason most people misunderstand that, I think, is that their arms are behind them and they're and they're shifting, they're swaying. Mm-hmm. But speaking of, before we wrap up here, one of the most uh, talked about things is the secret Hogan's mm-hmm. secret. You know, mm-hmm. Timmy kind of hinted at it with that mm-hmm. ridiculous title, which I love. But what that is another one of the most discussed things about Hogan. What was the secret? Okay. Well. I asked Sam Sneed that question, and uh, you know this book, which I, I I mean I recommend. You know I don't I don't get any royalties from it, but it's called The Game I Love, and it was during that period when uh, Harvey Pinnock's Little Red Book was out. So they're little stories. So they wanted Sam to do a book telling stories. So that was my job. I did about a quarter of the book to get him to tell stories. So I asked him about Hogan's secret, and he said, "I know what Hogan's secret was." I said, okay, what was it? He said, Hogan extended his right arm down the line longer than anybody else. Of course, everybody has an opinion about what Hogan said. So then he, but then he concluded, he said, anyway, there are no secrets in golf. Everybody's watching, he said. Hmm. Now, I'll give you my answer, okay? They asked Hogan what was the secret. And he said, the secret's in the dirt. Go and dig it out of the dirt. And everybody thought he was being evasive and he didn't want to share the secret. It's being parsimonious. He he knew it, but he wouldn't tell anybody. Oh, it's cupping the right hand. It's rolling the face open. It's you know, uh, you know, extending the right arm. It's back. It's it's shifting the weight to you know. I think he was telling us the truth. This the secret is not something. First of all, it has to stay. A, the secret is that it has to remain a secret because once you start talking about it, it's not a secret anymore, and you lose that whole internal relationship to your swing mm-hmm. that people like Tim Galloway and in, in the inner game of tennis and the whole, you know, emphasize. But when he said the secrets in the dirt, go and dig it out of the dirt. People then went, okay, okay. He means practice. He means hard work. That's what the secret is, but it's more than that. The secret is not available to you immediately. You have to find it. It's not, and, and we all have, I don't know about you, but I, I think, we share golfers share the experience of thinking the going to the range or going to play and they think they have the secret. That's why I said in this book, I wrote the poetics of golf, you know, the three most feared words in golf aren't you are, you are away. It's I found it, Mm. you know, because the, it that you think you found just hides the, they that it's covering up. So it's under it. You've got to go through, a process of trial and error and 
And that's when you find you have to, the secret is discovering the secret. That's right. the only way I could put it. And it's different for everybody because that's what the golfing machine teaches us. The, it, and the human body teaches us we're we're, we're so uh, complex and have such capacity for range of motion that to be good golfers, we've got to organize and segregate that motion to something that resembles something we can repeat over and over again as best we can. And so there isn't one secret. The secret is discovering the secret. That's what I think. Mm-hmm. Because otherwise, people can cup their wrists, and they didn't find the secret. People can slide and turn their hips, and they didn't, you know, find the secret. People can extend their arm down the line, and they haven't found it, you know. I think in a way, are you saying... Um, Sorry, that's the best I can do. No, that's, that was really, really... There's a lot of great stuff in that, Andy. Thank you. What I'm hearing you say, to some degree, how I interpret it, is that while digging out of the, out of the dirt... I become more aware of my own experience of of what's happening and certain things I'm going to feel and try and think maybe that's the thing. And then the next day it doesn't work or whatever, but also balancing that with all the thoughts we have and the, you know, Oh, and the emotions and, and, you know, that part of golf and how that just sends us off the rails. So why don't you speak to how that, how that, well, there's the rub, so to speak, and there's the kind of danger and a, and, a, and, a, and a bit of trouble I've fallen into with my fascination with the golfing machine. Uh, because we're not machines. And he's uses the term machine as a metaphor, you know, which means he's comparing the swing and the body to a machine that has parts that can be assembled and calibrated and, and organized and, to, you know. But the thing is, you know... Um, as I said, you know, in an interview with Gary Player, who I've had the pleasure, I've actually done some writing for Gary, too, or contributing nice. to a book uh, um, that he did um, on his golf course architecture. I said, Gary, what's the one thing that we fans don't know about you great champions? Mm-hmm. I love this. And he said, everybody thinks we have one swing, Andy, that we repeat over and over again. But the truth is, we're always changing it. We're always experimenting. We're always trying something a little different. It may look the same to the naked eye, but, but you know, we're always making small adjustments. And I think that's, um, I mean, you know, what, and, and I think people do that intuitively. The question is, you know, do we, do we lead a blind search or do we lead a guided search? You know, I yeah, mean, and, and, you and know, even that's why these pros have teachers. And you they know who else? You know who else said that? Almost word for word? It's Bobby Jones. Bobby Jones. Oh, really? I didn't know that. In, in, in his book, um, he talked about the fact that it was basically, I'll, I'll, I'll paraphrase it by saying what he's talked about how, you know, he, even though he won all these great tournaments, the things he was thinking about in his swing were different all the time. Wow. So, yeah, I think it comes down to in the end that a golfer needs some kind, and I've said this on the show, you need some kind of foundational basics. If your ball is too far back and you're aimed 30 yards right, you know, you're not going to find it in any dirt. But if you have some basics, if your foundations are solid, then you're always going to find a, a cue, a thought, or a, a feeling. The problem with the game is those cues and thoughts and feelings can change from day to day because our body feels different. Not can. They do. They do. 
Yeah, they do change from day to day. Absolutely. And and part of that again has to do with this range of motion that we're all that our joints are built to have. Um, yeah, and so I think Howard, you. So what's what's this the solution? The solution is to develop uh, knowledge of the swing and approach that knowledge with as much flexibility and um, you know uh, experimentation as as you can. Now let me just quote one last uh, book you mentioned, "Golf My Way." Uh, Nicholas's yeah. great book. Nicholas said. And it's, again, a direct quote that I remember. He said either 95 or 98 percent of everything that happens in a golf swing happens before you take the club back. Mm -hmm. Meaning he emphasized exactly what I just said, that if you haven't got some basic structure down, then you're going to have a lot of trouble being consistent, which is what every person listening wants. Tim, what did you want to say as we wrap up our our guest? Well, Andy, this has been fascinating. And I think that one of the things that uh, both fascinates and uh, infuriates our listeners is this whole thing around taking an idea or a thought to the golf course. Like, say, on a Friday, uh, they they go to the range and they find something. Oh, my, when I right. do this with my right hip or I do this with my lead wrist or whatever, man, I hit the ball great. I found it. Yeah. Yeah. So tomorrow I'll go out and I think that I own golf and here I go and yeah. I'm win all and win the NASA and the, my club C and then you're seven over after three holes. <laughs> That's right. It's so done. What? So right. you know, I love where we're going here with in terms of this, you know, as you talked about, golfers are always experimenting, adjusting. But how do we strike this balance between going to the first tee with some intellectual concept of what we're going to do and be able to try to also swing instinctually and draw on our innate talent? Uh, I mean, it's almost a problem without a solution. I mean, it's the nature of golf, I think. And one has to kind of um, enjoy that. I also think, you know, um, back to Bobby Jones, who said there's golf and there's competitive golf. I think, you know, we're all taught and I suppose I'll, you know, um, you know, claim some guilt for it on some level to use the tour players and the tour level golf, competitive golf as the model for all of our golf, you know, but I mean, you know, but you can imagine in the old days in, in, in Scotland or even, I mean, my father, For I talked about my father. I, mean, I I can't count the number of range balls I hit. Even in one day, I can't sometimes can't count them. He never hit a bucket of range balls in his life unless he was with me at the range. He just loved to play and he, he enjoyed it. He was a businessman. It got him away from the office. He played golf, not competitive golf. And I think that in a lot of ways, that's what a lot of people do, you know, and that's why they don't get hung up in swing theory. You know, they enjoy it at the level they play it. And I think, but to more specifically answer, let's go back to Nicholas and what he and what he's said in the book. It may not in the, be in the book, but he said it many, many times or written it. When he's working on something on the range and he says when he gets it, if he, he stops. So if he's hit 12 balls and he's achieved what he set out to, but if he doesn't, he doesn't keep trying to find it on the range. He packs up his clubs and he goes back. He called it his favorite chair. 
He sat in it and he thought about it. You know, he he imagined and tried to visualize the problem and solve it that way. And mm-hmm. I think that may help some golfers. It's it's a very it's a game for thinkers yeah. and a game for uh, uh, you know that in, in both thinking and imagination are. Are very important. And you'll appreciate this. I read an interesting thing uh, Stephen King wrote about when he gets stuck on an idea. And yeah. he said, you know, sometimes I'm, I can't figure out what's going on in a story. I'll walk away. And as he says, to, he says, I'll let the boys in the basement figure it out. Meaning, yeah. meaning the subconscious, he says, and he'll come back the next day. And sure enough, the boys in the basement have somehow put it together. And I think that's what a lot of golfers would benefit from. Because we, we're all, all three of us, I guarantee, are guilty of this. I know I am. I am recently of, you know, trying to work on this thing, work on this thing, and it's not working. And I just right. stay there to the point yeah. where I'm sore, aggravated, and I still haven't solved it. Exactly. So if we're golfing machines, we're golfing machines with imaginations and creativity. We're not something that are designed to do the same thing over and over and over again because... That's the definition of insanity. Exactly. Well, yeah, so listen, man, Andy, uh, on, uh, I can tell you we've had this a fascinating... can drive you crazy. We've had a fascinating conversation. We certainly appreciate you. Well, thank you. And uh, very we, much, well, Alaska, we'd like to have you come back anytime that you feel like having a conversation with a couple of nerds on golf. We really... You know, anytime your schedule is clear, my friend. Okay, what are you doing about you know, <laughs> two or three hours? Listen, I got nothing. I'm in Andy. I'm in Mexico. I got nothing to do for the next couple hours. I'll just wrap this thing well, up. I'm and, going to the range. I don't know about so you guys. So am I. So am I. All right. I'm going to work on. I'm going to work on the slide and turn. There you go. Thanks, Andy. Good to see you, Andy. Well, Take care. The last thing about that that we learned from the golfing machine is that hip turn is in itself weight is in itself a weight shift. Yeah. So when you're turning your hip to the left, it is moving to the left. But it ne- there it gets back to the writing. That needs to be laid out. And that's why people kept saying, I, I imagine they kept saying, maybe Ben Hogan thought of it himself. Yeah, the, 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 the downswing hip turn is wider than the backswing hip turn. And it's also, you know, involves some lateral movement. Appreciate you, it my friend. Nat- it can happen naturally, but you better be aware of it, too. All right. Have a good, have a good range session. Thanks a lot, fellas. Hope all right, to talk Andy. To you and see you again. Take care. Bye. Bye. All right. Bye bye. Wow. There's a lot to unpack there, my friend. <gasps> well, isn't it great when you get with a super deep golf nerd? I mean, my oh, yeah. goodness. That guy, you know, as a you know, as a writer, as someone who's been thinking deeply about the game for a long, long time, um, yeah, like you say, a lot, a lot to unpack there. Um, um, I want to apologize. I've been. Uh, it's not that I have a cold, but I've been talking. I did the Humble and Fred show earlier, and sometimes when I'm uh, when I do shows back to back, I just get my throat just gets so hoarse because I've been yelling since six a.m. So does it sound? Do I sound okay? Or do I just sound like I'm? Uh, sound fine. All you right. Sound fine. All right. Um. Yeah, man. Uh. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if it was Zoom. Or uh, the connection, but there was a lot there. I would I would have loved to have gone back and forth a little bit more, but you know that's not the yeah. nature of uh, the way he raps. But man, there's a lot of stuff there. 
Well, I think, you know, quite honestly, um, <clears throat> once we all get sort of used to each other <laughs> and how, how we roll, uh, cause, um, man, I thought that in the second half of our time with Andy, we're going to have some really good stuff there. And I loved how we talked about, I think it was, um, that you know in, in digging through the dirt we kind of we we expose things and things get hidden and we kind of find ourselves i mean it was like some really cool stuff oh yeah and um i think i have his i think i have his book of poetry somewhere but it's um you can only have so many books on the bookshelf <laughs> so no, i'm gonna have to go find that one um, I'm not sure how much longer um, I have, but I do want to take some time. Uh, well, I've got a couple stories, but I'll save one of them for next time. I actually um, also want to make sure everyone knows that uh, Tim's latest Substack is toconnor.substack.com. And the article is called, Does Working on Yourself Actually Work? And give your uh, take a few minutes now. I'll tell you what, here's what we'll do. You tell our listeners what this is about, because I've... I looked at it this morning, but that was three or four hours ago. There's a great line in this article where you talk about uh, Sandy, your wife, who thinks that <laughs> one day, one day you're just going to die from the avalanche of books next to your bedside table. I thought that was brilliant. So you, here's what I want to do. Next time I'm going to tell a story about meeting the two happiest. Well, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll give you a choice after you tell me about your Substack. You can either hear about the two happiest golfers I've ever played with or how I met a tour player uh, and became friends with them down here. Okay? So that's a little bit of what we call in radio a tease. So you okay. tell your Substack. I know it's going to be a tough one. I may tell both of these. <laughs> but, um, well, I I, again, I don't know what your timeline is. I've got nothing to do, really. Uh, but uh, you tell me, why don't you tell us what the uh, article's about, and then if people want to read more, they can. Yeah, okay. Well, thank you. Thank you. Um, so, uh, George Durrani, who uh, I'm not sure he's quite a friend of show level, but we've had him on a number of times. And he twigged me onto an interesting book called Working on Yourself Doesn't Work which struck me as the most hilarious title for a book you'd find in the self-help section mm -hmm. of a bookstore. But um, so I read this book and, it, and really, really interesting stuff. And, and it got me thinking about how certainly in golf, people are always working on something, trying to shallow out their, their downswing or get the club on the right path, etc. And we all have friends who, they're, they're always on some kind of cleanse or they told you about the book they just read that is amazing. Uh, well, never mind the book that they read the month before or the course they took or the retreat they went on. So people are always working on themselves. But using myself as an example, um, you know, I've, you know, I'm a, I'm a seeker, you know, hence the, the note about all the books on my bedside table. So it got me thinking about really after reading this book, with all this work that we do, whatever we do, does it actually make any difference? And I would argue, no. Most of it doesn't make a difference. And so the book aligns with some of the things that I've been thinking about and looking at for a number of years is, is that if we desire to change, and yet we don't, and we set all these goals 
and we don't really meet most of them. What the hell is going on here? And so the the book goes into some interesting things about how the mind works and how, in essence, we're really, even though, you know, I'm 65 years old, in many ways, I'm still five years old because that's the way my mind works is my mind is always trying to protect me from bad shit that's happening. So when things come up in my life, the first thing the mind does is, oh, you don't want to do that. Or you better, you better do this to keep yourself safe. And quite frankly, to get to the nub of, of my blog is about is how a lot of times we're making decisions based on our thinking and our thinking is generally based on the past, which is usually linked to quite frankly, trauma, disappointment, things that have happened. And so the mind says, you better do this to keep yourself safe or to protect yourself. So we're, so really as mature people, we're making a lot of decisions based on some messaging and and ways of being that developed when we were quite young. And so a lot of the these things that we choose to do or the way we think we need to go don't really serve us mm-hmm. now. So I don't know, that, that's kind of, so that's that's the nub of it. There's certainly more there, but... Well, there's a lot more there. How did it strike you? Um, I mean, I, uh, you know, I don't want to take the... Um, counter view but my my first well my first thought is that you're mostly right that you know people are desperate to make changes and that's why those shelves are filled with the latest cleanse the latest you know trends and the way fitness is etc and of course golf is you know filled with that i mean andy our guest is a certified instructor in the golfing machine, the A swing, the impact zone. He worked with McLean. Where I push back, though, is that it's the journey. It's in the trying to make change that sometimes you have breakthroughs, you know. So, yes, maybe the majority of people never make a big wholesale change in their lives. But I believe strongly in the idea that human beings have the capacity for change. Oh, and, I agree with you. And it's, in, and it's in making the effort and being absorbed in the process. You know, Fred, my uh, radio partner, said to me the other day, he said, how can you just, because he was asking me how much golf I was playing down here. <laughs> and I told him, which is an enormous amount. And he said, how can you just do that day after day? And I said, Freddie, you know, when I'm absorbed in the process of doing it, there, if my body would hold out, I would do it all day because I just love it. You know, I would, I would spend my time, you know, with uh, Sam Harris's meditation app because I just love it. I don't know where it's getting me. And, you know, there's some frustrating moments in terms of my golf ability. But I love the, I love the, I love the effort. I love the process of it. Yeah, in many ways, it connects with what we're talking about Andy about you know Hogan's thing about digging out of the dirt you could use that for all kinds of life it's through it's through our experiences that we grow but we're also faced with our 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 shadows our our belief systems the things the things that don't work the things that 
maybe have stopped working, the strategy, the strategies that we've had, the message that comes up about myself if I don't achieve something or I don't feel like I did it right. And it's all of that, that stew of things that's always going on. So, yeah, I, I, obviously it's in, it's in through the journey that we, we learn. I think where the key thing about the, this book and where I was going with it is that there's so much that we look at in that's presented to us, whether it be in bookstores or on Instagram or whatever, that really is kind of sucks us in mm-hmm. it, is that, you know, okay, you're dissatisfied with uh, your golf swing. If you just do this, this, and this, you'll cure it. And, you know, I'm the same as anybody else. Um, you know, I've talked about this on the show before. You know, we've had a guest on and they say, well, if you just do this thing, really? If I just do this thing, mm-hmm. my I'll hit every shot well, super solid. And, let me just interject and, by so saying, we're kind of let, attracted to that. This let me dopamine hit. Let me just interject by saying, I, I guarantee you, there's a at least ten percent of our audience uh, after hearing this is going to go and start sliding to the left and then opening their hips. And by the way, 100%. I also want to say uh, parenthetically that that Stephen King quote that I threw out there, I realize now it was from your blog. You know, it's so funny, like. I am a weird that way that I read that four hours ago, now five hours ago. And for some reason, even though I remember the quote, I couldn't remember where it came from. It's from Tim's blog, which, by the way, I'm not arguing isn't excellent. And you will enjoy thoroughly at toconnor.substack.com. Yeah, I, um, I think that uh, the more people... Forget people. The more I get absorbed in the process of anything, the richer the experience is for me, which is why I have trouble kind of doing things halfway. You know, I. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, anyone. Uh, well, Fred Shoemaker says that anyone who does anything at a really, really high level, they just have more awareness than the rest of us. You know, why? Why? You know, why was Jimi Hendrix an amazing guitar player? Because he just never, ever stopped playing. Yeah, exactly. He just, had this, he just had this this relationship with the instrument and with music. I remember seeing a really interesting movie uh, about Dexter Gordon. And I forget the, um, I think it was called, I think it was called Round Midnight. Mm-hmm. And he was, um, like a lot of jazz musicians, um, he had this incredible ability to play and improvise and create things in the moment but he was also tortured by music because he was he always had music going through his head and and could this be better and do this do that and quite frankly it's why a lot of them struggle with uh with addictions of uh you know particularly heroin and different things is is that they just they're so immersed in this experience that it's torturous sometimes and I think that happens to, to, to golfers who get in deep on, or anyone who gets super deep on anything. Well, it's that word you were, it's funny you used that word at the end there about it being immersed because in order to be, you know, successful or good or make any changes, whether it's a diet or starting a new company, you know, people that are successful are generally immersive characters you know the yeah. i know we've said this a thousand times but you know the old stories of you know i wanted to be a boxer until i met somebody who really wanted to be a boxer you know when <laughs> people when, when people you know like i get 
made fun of a little bit or mocked a little bit for how much I work on my game. And maybe I should be better, you know, according to some people, but it's not work to me. And I immerse, I'm immersed in it. You know, I was thinking of this, you know, I was telling you before the show, I've been coming to Mexico for a long time. And over the years, I've taken some Spanish classes, but I've immersed myself the last six or seven weeks in an online course. And I do like a half an hour every day. But I'm also in an environment where I walk out the door, you know, in between the Humble and Fred show and, and recording Swing Thoughts this morning. I walk the block from here. There's a little coffee shop, and every day I'm speaking Spanish to those people. And, you know, they're sort of not, they can sort of see I'm making an effort. And yesterday I came up with a whole different set of words they'd never seen me say before. And they were like, you know, got all excited. But I'm, si, I, senor. yeah, well, I'm so immersed in it. And, and because I find the process fascinating. I mean, you, here's the thing. Where I am right now, you could easily get away without speaking any Spanish. Now, I go to a local grocery store. Everyone speaks Spanish. The golf course, they speak some English, but mostly Spanish. But I could, you could get away with it. But I don't care. I want to actually put myself sort of in this situation where I'm forcing myself to speak it. So... That word you use, immersive, that all those people, Jimi Hendrix, you know, whether it was, you know, uh, the Beatles, they, 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 they just did it all the time. And, you know, so what is that? Talent plus, you know, what is success is 99% perspiration. Yeah. And totally. I'll, just, I'll just finish by saying that's why most golfers never get better. It's because getting better is hard. It's hard as shit. You yeah, know? absolutely. And, and and it's not for everybody. No, but I also think that what happens this is part of what I'm getting at in that blog, and I think this book is that we tend to run from thing to thing to thing. Yeah, that this one thing works. Oh, but it doesn't work anymore. So I got to do this new thing. Yeah, and and it's all these shiny objects we go we go running towards, and and that's all this working on ourselves. I think tends to do so. We kind of get distracted by all this external shit that's going on, as opposed to learning from our from our own experience. That doesn't discount that if you work with a great coach, whether a uh, guitar coach, you, you know, uh, your CFO, you get you, you got a, a coach that helps with that, or golf. But it's it's being able to take that in and learn from your own experience. All right. So, what do you want? Do you want the uh, do you Happiest want the, Okay. The next time on the show. I'll tell you about being on the range. I guess we're going to do a show in a couple of weeks. Actually, you know, we'll have to talk about that because a couple of weeks from now, I'm going to be traveling. So we might want to do it on a different day. Anyway, yep. on the next show, I'll tell you about how just the sound of somebody hitting a golf ball behind me uh, led me to meeting a guy that was the 1986 California State Amateur Champion who turned pro, played on the mini tours, played on played on the PGA Tour briefly, and I got to golf with him. So I'll tell you that story nice. next time. But I'm uh, yesterday I was uh, at a different golf course uh, than I've been playing. One of the, the main course I'm playing here is called PGA Riviera Maya, and I'll talk about that next time too because they've been great with me. But I was at the Hard Rock course in Playa Car, which is near Playa del Carmen. And I was supposed to play with a friend of my brother's, and he canceled at the last minute. So the guy's there again. I'm speaking my stupid little Spanish, and they, they sort of break the rules a little bit because they've seen me enough to know I'm a decent player. And so they let me out by myself. 
So I'm mm-hmm. gonna. I mean, it's it's a it's a long round. It's a resort course. I've had a round there that was five hours and fifteen minutes. It's a really long day because it's all resort golfers. So I uh, said to myself, I'll play the back tees. I'll play two balls, and I'm gonna go off by myself and just have fun. I literally tee off in the first hole. And I look behind me and I see two guys. I'm, I'm like well down the fairway and I see two guys coming up in a cart and they're going to the very front tees. So there's black, blue, white and red. And these two dudes are playing the red tees. And I thought there's a force. All there is is foursomes in front of me. Yeah. So I turn around I pick up one of my balls. I turn around and I go and ask them if they wouldn't mind if I joined them. And they couldn't have been more delighted because these are two of the happiest golfers I've ever played with. One is a guy from North Country in England. His name is Ronnie. And it's like it's like a being on an episode of that. Uh, what's that show that runs that sitcom or no, that soap opera from England? Um, oh, Carnation Street. It's like was being with Carnation Street people. And uh, Ronnie's friend was Avi. Avi's uh, an Israeli guy. They're both in their... Avi's probably in his 60s. Ronnie's in his 70s. He's got a Colonel Sanders long beard and a floppy hat. And here's what I knew there was something up. Because they were not going to play their own ball, Tim. They don't play their own ball. They play a best ball every time they play. Every time they play golf. And they, by the way, are horrible. Ronnie can keep it in play, but Avi's only been playing for four or five years and has no clue. But he doesn't give a shit about that. Just enjoys every shot like I've never seen anybody. And they just play a best ball with each other. So they both tee off. They both go to the best drive. They both go. And and all they do all day long at first, just going to tell you what a dick I am. All they do all day long is encourage the shit out of each other to like almost like a almost like a weird Ronnie just kept going oh Avi great oh and just celebrating every crappy shot this guy hit for 18 holes and and so we've got lots of time to talk as we're waiting on every shot and I come to at first it was irritating because I was like oh just stop already you know I'm a dick but a few holes in, I'm like, I realized I was playing with guys that were enjoying golf in a way that I rarely see. Yeah. And certainly in a way that I wish I could as well. Every day they play, their goals are the following. They want to make five par- <laughs> they want to make five pars best ball. And if they make a birdie, it's a huge bonus. So and 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 the uh, I'm gonna tell you this, just wrapping this up in a second. So they come to every tee box that I'm on, which is way back from them. It's a pretty long golf course. <clears throat> I'm playing it at about 6,500, 6,600 yards. And they come back to every tee box and watch me, t- watch me hit. Because I am far and away the best player they've ever seen. And they are not only celebrating each other, but every time my ball leaves my club, they are freaking the fuck out. It's unbelievable. Again, I'm an asshole, so at, at, at one point, I'm like, just easy, like in my mind. In my mind, I'm saying things like, all right, easy, take it easy now. You know, I didn't, I mean, I might have pushed a shot right at the green. They're freaking out that the ball's in the air. Anyway, I grow to love these two guys. As the round wears on, I can see that, you know what, again, they're teaching me a lesson. Yeah. So they make their pars. Here's the end of the story. They make their pars, and I'm playing a decent round. I don't, it doesn't matter what I shot, but I was playing pretty well. On the front nine, I might have been a couple over. On the back nine, I'm even par. One birdie, one bogey. And the 18th hole, 
on this golf course is about a 475 yard par five, but it's over water twice. And I normally play it, you know, driver, hybrid, and I can get near the green. But anyway, these guys are talking about how they've not made their birdie yet. So I have this idea that on the last hole, I said, hey, guys. Would you mind if I joined your team for this hole? And Aww, they're like, love this. I know. And I said, would you guys mind if I was part? Can I be part of team Ronnie and Avi? They're like, yeah. I said, listen, I just want to see if I can help us get a birdie. And sure enough, we used my killed my drives, killed it from their tees. It was four eleven. We had like one thirty five in. And uh, they were just thrilled to play. They'd never seen. First of all, they'd never played from that part of the hole. And um, we hit my we all hit our second shots. And we were just short of the green, and one of them putted up, and we had a tap in for birdie, and we all high-fived. And I thought, you know, I've learned something here today. I've oh, learned yeah. that. I really did. I really learned, first of all, I'm a dick, obviously. <laughs> that wasn't, I didn't learn that, but I was like, God damn it, man. But I really learned that watching these guys enjoy golf, and they play, Tim, five times a week. They play horribly five times a week. But they, I've never seen people enjoy it like that. Like that is amazing. Yeah, but I just and when I said to them, "Hey, would you guys mind if I joined you?" They were just so so excited and so thrilled. That's amazing. Well, you know what? As your podcast colleague, as your friend, mm-hmm. and as your part time coach, yes, I would say you've got some work to do about self image. <laughs> but <laughs> oh, that's funny. You could you could make that into like a. A, a children's book aimed at golfers, you know, yeah. age five to nine or so. <laughs> and uh, you could maybe make the, the golfers into like little animals. One's oh, a bear, yeah. one's a lion, one's a maybe. Maybe you're the zebra and maybe you changed your stripes. I don't know. I like just, it, yeah. We're just, we're, we're just messing here. But what a wonderful story. I, I, I just love that. I had this, the imagery of, the image of those guys watching your ball you know hurdle like a missile down there and they've never seen anybody be able to do that i I totally get that and how they would just be sort of so genuinely excited yeah they were and and ronnie who is the older of the two uh was a little hard of hearing so when he would cheer for and he honestly tim he cheered for every shot i hit and every shot his partner hit the entire way but he was doing it pretty loudly because he's a little bit of hard of hearing, which, again, at first I found irritating until I stopped being an asshole and started to and go. And I started watching him I'm like nobody's having more fun at golf than this guy. And he doesn't care how he hits it. And you know what? He hit it. OK, like he would hit it. It was always in front of him, but he never hit it more than, you know, if he ripped one off the tee, it was 100 yards, but he never lost a yeah. ball. And they hit some nice shots. They made their five pars. And I was cheering. Once I got into it, I started cheering for them. You know, when they made their first par, I'm like, okay, four down. You know, one down, four to go. And then when they, when they got to the last hole and they hadn't made their birdie yet, I thought, you know, this is what I want to do. Forget your stupid score, Howard. You know what I mean? Like, and that's what I, I was going to say. Like, another version of me would have been so into the fact that I was, you know, going to shoot whatever I shot. Mm-hmm. Like I would have birdied the last hole. I birdied it probably half the time. So I would have shot 74 or 75, but who gives a shit really? And, and, and what does it matter? Exactly. I mean, yes, it matters. But in another way, it doesn't really matter yeah, at all. I remember um, I, for a few years, for a season, I was doing a, um, a, web, a, a workshop series called Getting Unstuck. And I remember 
having these discussions with some of the people about the most fun they ever had on a golf course. And it was never about the scores they shot. Mm-hmm. Never. It was about the taking their their dad out to say a fancy golf course for the first time or 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 playing with a, a kid or a nephew and just having fun. And and I remember two of the most fun games I ever had was playing with our, you know, good friend Ronan Quinn. Four degrees. Wind, you know, snow coming sideways. <laughs> I know. This like, we, there's only one other group on the golf. We're stupid enough to be on the golf course. Ron and I still talk about that round. Mm. And the other time I played in in Myrtle Beach, in which it was just raining like crazy, but we had nothing else to do. So we went and played, and it's like rivers going over our shoes, <laughs> and we're soaked. But man, at, in the bar afterwards, everyone was just ecstatic, telling stories mm-hmm. and ha- about how much fun they had. Well, maybe that's where we'll stop today. Thanks again to Andy Broomer. Uh, Gold, seriously, we didn't, as you guys can tell, we didn't even scratch the surface with that dude. You know, what we need to do, I think, and we can talk about this after, is we need to curate. We say, hey, Andy, we want you to come on the show, and we want to talk about this thing. Exactly. You know, because we, not that we wasted, but there was a lot of time at the beginning where I think Andy thought we needed his bio. And that's not, that's perfectly fine, but I wanted to get to that golf machine and all that stuff that we did. Totally. Uh, thanks, as always, to uh, TaylorMade Golf. As I've mentioned several times, toconnor.substack.com. Our uh, Facebook page is Swing Thoughts. That's how Andy got a hold of us. You can, too. And, of course, check out the Humble and Fred program. And the Humble and Fred podcast continues. And uh, we'll see you next week. Sound of the river, you stop and you hold. 